This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. I'm Mary Camario, professor of the Graduate School in the College of Environmental Design and chair of the Hitchcock Professorship Committee. We are pleased, along with the Graduate Council, to present Lucy Jones, this year's speaker in the Charles M. and Martha Hitchcock Lecture Series. As a condition of this bequest, we are obligated and happy to tell you how the endowment came to UC Berkeley. It is a story that exemplifies the many ways this campus is linked to the history of California and to the Bay Area. Dr. Charles Hitchcock, a physician for the Army, came to San Francisco during the gold rush where he opened a thriving private practice in 1885. Charles established a professorship here at Berkeley as an expression of his long-held interest in education. His daughter, Lily Hitchcock Coit, still treasured in San Francisco for her colorful personality as well as her generosity, greatly expanded her father's original gift to establish a professorship at UC, making it possible for us to present this series of lectures. The Hitchcock Fund has become one of the most cherished endowments of the University of California, recognizing the highest distinction of scholarly thought and achievement. Thank you, Lily and Charles. And now, a few words about Lucy Jones. Dr. Lucy Jones has served as a seismologist with the U.S. Geological Survey and visiting research associate at the Seismological Laboratory at Caltech since 1983. She created SAFRR, Science Application for Risk Reduction Project, to innovate and protect the safety, security, and economic well-being of the nation. Major products of SAFER, I guess we should say, that acronym, include the ShakeOut Earthquake Scenario um, and the Great ShakeOut, a public emergency preparedness event that began with 5 million people in Southern California in 2008 and has expanded to more than 24 million people annually around the world in 2013. The Arc Storm scenario is a model of a great storm in California, and there's a safer tsunami scenario. So these things have brought huge public awareness to disaster preparedness. In 2014, she served in a special assignment as the mayor's science advisor for seismic safety for the city of Los Angeles, applying the results of the shakeout scenario to increase the resilience of the city. The task force recommendation included retrofitting many of the city's older concrete buildings, planning water backup systems for the fire department, and building a solar-powered wireless network to back up cellular and digital service. On October 9th, 2015, just of last week, Jones celebrated a triumphant moment as the legislation was passed requiring the mandatory earthquake retrofit of 15,000 buildings in Los Angeles. I have to personally tell you, this is a really big deal. And this was not easy. And Lucy deserves a huge amount of the credit for the kind of coalition she put together. She received a Bachelor of Arts degree in Chinese language and literature, magna cum laude, from Brown University in 1976. At Brown, she also studied physics and began to gravitate towards geophysics. In 1981, um, she had her PhD in geophysics from MIT. She is a fellow of the American Geophysical Union, member of the Resilient America Roundtable of the National Academy of Sciences, and previously served on the California Seismic Safety Commission. She has received numerous awards, including the Meritorious Service Award from the Department of the Interior, an Ambassador Award from the American Geophysical Union for outstanding contributions in policy and public service. In early October, Jones was awarded the Samuel J. Heyman Service to America Medal um, in Citizen in Services, often known as the Oscars of Government Service. They're called the Sammies, for those of you who don't know that award, recognizing federal workers who have made notable impact in the United States and around the world. And I should add that she has just been given a Distinguished Alumni Award from Brown University. Um, would you thank me and the host Department of Seismology in welcoming Dr. Lucy Jones to Berkeley?
thank you, Mary, and I'm glad to be here. Um, and uh, it's been a, a extraordinary time in the in the last month, especially being able to see this uh, um, uh, significant step in seismic safety for. Uh, the city of Los Angeles, and I do hope that it's going to end up being um, a, a significant event for for the whole state. I really think that we're going to be able to to use this opportunity to um, advance across the state and, and maybe eventually across the country. We're seeing a shift in how people think about disasters, and that's the the really fundamental issue. Is this something that you can't predict, and who knows what's going to happen? Or is it something that's inevitable, it's just a matter of when, and there are things that we can do about it? And I've spent a lot of my work over the last decade is trying to, to help that shift in, in uh, opinion happen. And it's a combination of a lot of things. Part of it is about how we as scientists communicate. We like to focus on what we don't know because that's what's interesting. That's what, where we do our work. Uh, when we communicate to the public that way, we often end up communicating that we don't know instead of focusing on the things that we do know. And what I'm going to talk about today is the process of creating disaster scenarios as a way of helping our communities better understand what science has to tell them and how they can be used to be making better, um, better choices about this. And I'm going to focus primarily on our first scenario, which was to create uh, an earthquake on the southern San Andreas Fault, really focused on southern California, uh, and uh, look at how we put together the information and then to a certain amount about how it was used a lot of it is applicable for other disasters and for other regions. And in fact, uh, the SAFER project is just now coming towards the end of creating a scenario, a comprehensive scenario uh, for the Hayward Fault. We all know that we have earthquake risks here. We've had the science of, of what's the hazard, what's the shaking. But integrating it over a range of disciplines to better understand what it means for us as individuals and as communities uh, gives us the support for moving forward some of these policy decisions that we want to have. So... Um, Let's start with why we would be wanting to do it. I'll just remind you, you know, we, we, this is the way a seismologist or a geologist sees California. All of those red lines are uh, some of the faults that we have. Um, and those faults are what make California, California. Right? Because of the San Andreas, we have the San Francisco Bay. Because of the Frontal Fault, we create the Sierra Nevada Mountains. The San Gabriel Mountains are there because of the Sierra Madre Fault. The faults are what make California a place we want to live. Without it, we'd be a desert. It's our mountains that are trapping our um, uh, moisture. And especially for those of us in Southern California, the faults trapped the oil, which is how the whole city got started in the first place. So if they're all part of what our reality is. If we want to live here, we have to learn to live with the earthquakes. So we need to learn to live with that risk. And um, what is the nature of the risk? In general, most people are afraid of dying in an earthquake. The reality is, if you look at uh, your chance of dying, if you're a regular skier, you have about a 1 in 10,000 chance of dying uh, because of skiing, unless you wore helmets, and then you can bring the, the rate down to a certain extent. Um, your chance of dying from lightning is about 1 in 80,000. That's how many Americans will die this death. You know, it's a, it's a weird sort of statistic. What death do you die? You know, one in two Americans die from heart disease, right? Um, one in 80,000 die by hitting hit by lightning. And presumably you only die once, so you can use this as a pretty robust statistic. Um, for dying in an earthquake, uh, it's about one in 125,000. Right? And it's a hard number to get. They are extremely infrequent. How many people are really going to die in the next earthquake? How far have we gotten all this? But in general, our one is earthquakes are cause fear out of proportion to the risk to our lives. Uh, and we have done a pretty good job of installing, you know, working with life safety in our building code. So your chance of dying in an earthquake is not very high. This really isn't about dying. It's about living and what life is going to be like after the earthquake, and will this city keep on working. So we have defined what we've been aiming for as urban disaster resilience, having a city that still functions 
after the earthquake, after the disaster. And as society has become more complex, that's become a more difficult thing to do. So part of what I'm going to be showing you today is how we go and look at urban life as a system of systems and the ways in which disasters can disrupt those systems that make life work. We've done this primarily through the shakeout scenario right, where we chose one particular earthquake and went and built together a picture of what it would be like in the event. And you notice I've got a lot of different disciplines. To actually get an accurate picture of what this is going to be like, you need to invoke a very wide range of um, scientific and social science disciplines. You know, the seismologists can tell you what the fault is, and often we'll do that, and we'll give you a pattern of shaking and say, there, we're done, there's your scenario. In fact, that doesn't tell a human being what happens to them. You go to the engineer, and they'll take what the seismologists do, and then they say, you know, here's what happens to all the buildings and all the infrastructure. There, there's the picture. It still isn't making connections to people. It's only when we take it up through all of the social sciences where we really think about what happens to people and to communities that we start connecting and, and giving people the information that allows them to make those policy decisions. Just want to make a point. This is how we created it for an earthquake. For instance, here's how we put it together uh, for a storm scenario. You've got the same basic concepts. You have earth science, engineering, and social sciences. We have different pieces as we go along here. Um, on both the storm and the tsunami, it became a lot more interesting because we had to think about the, the role of prediction. Right? In earthquakes, you know, we don't predict them. We don't have to, to, to think about that. But in fact, like on a storm, what the prediction says determines a lot about how flood control management happens, for instance. Um, one of the things I didn't understand until I went in and looked at it is like, they actually get to choose where to flood in many cases. We have flood control. If you have a flood exceeding the capacity of your flood control, somebody has to decide whether to breach this levee or that levee, where to let the water go. Um, so it's a, it becomes a much more complex system. And as somebody said, imagine if you could go and bottle up your earthquake shaking and sell it the next summer. You end up with a whole different picture about how it gets managed. And, of course, in flood management, every bit of water that goes past the dam doesn't get to be sold the next summer. And it leads to whole different sets of dynamics. All right. So taking our picture of, of an earthquake, we now need to put it into a system. Um, this is the beginning of a city. Underneath all of our buildings, we have a whole network of, of pipes. We have water systems. We have sewer systems. Tend to be the oldest things in our community. They get put in before the rest of the city. And on top of this, we go ahead and we put our roads. We put the houses that we're living in. We're putting the buildings that we're working in. We're putting in our manufacturing centers, our uh, power systems, our communication systems, our transportation systems, and all of those systems are there to support human society. So if we want to look at the impact of a, of a disaster and inform people how they can make choices to move from that, we have to look at how all of these systems interact. Um, and I must say, as a scientist, I'm a bit frustrated at the simplicity of the analysis that we've been able to accomplish so far. It's a, an awful lot of hand-waving and, and approximations that, as a scientist, I'd much rather be more analytical, but we tend not to be. But as I said, at the, at the beginning of the earthquake scenario, we need to start with the earthquake itself. And so we started from these models. What I'm showing you is our animation of what we expect the earthquake shaking to be, having set up a lot of parameters to define the earthquake. I'll start with one point. The next earthquake will be different than this because we had to make so many assumptions. You know, it's, it's never going to be exactly that. And that was a really hard thing for the scientists to get past. They wanted to say, but, but you know, it's not going to be this or not that, and why did you say this? And what we have to do here is say we've picked a plausible scenario and be able to understand that this is the type of thing that we need to be planning for. Notice how much I've been talking, because I'm having to use up the time. A big earthquake like this happens on a long fault. We estimated it to be about, uh, we, we chose a 200-mile-long system. And the rupture propagates up this in real time. It is 75 seconds 
from the start of the earthquake until the strong shaking makes it into the Los Angeles area. So just by the way, a little bit of plug for what goes on here at Berkeley, this is why early warning is a particularly effective thing when we're talking about really big earthquakes. Uh, You have a lot of time within which to work. But the other thing to notice here is the scale over which the strong shaking happens. Okay, Here, uh, when you have a 200-mile-long fault, it means you have 200 miles that's actually producing the energy. And in Southern California, we have almost 10 million people that are going to be receiving extremely strong shaking, intensity 9 or 10, that was the level of shaking that we had only in the worst shaken parts of the valley in the Northridge earthquake. It's really, you only had it, I think, up in the Santa Cruz Mountains, maybe a little pocket in Santa Cruz and a pocket in the Marina District in the Loma Prieta earthquake. Here, because the fault is so long, we're going to be putting it through much larger territory and it's territory on which people live. So when we look at what this earthquake can do to us, we get a really sobering picture. And I'm, at this point, I'm basically just jumping over all of the work that went into analyzing this. But we started with all of this geologist understanding the shaking and the landslides that would be going through it. And we come up with the conclusion that we've got about 300,000 buildings will be moderately damaged, defined as losing 10% the value of the building. And uh, because of that building damage, we are going to end up with some substantial other types of damage. The one in 60 people having no place to live, 53,000 injuries bad enough to go to the emergency room at a time when we're probably losing uh, at least one-third the capacity of our hospitals due to damage to the hospitals, 1,800 deaths. You see, it's not a very big number compared to the rest of it. It does, unfortunately, assume that all of those 53,000 injuries are getting the medical care that they need. And if that gets really impaired, we could be raising the number that way. It's also potentially not the worst thing that's going to happen to us. Because when we looked at what happens to our utilities, we ended up coming to the conclusion that it was going to take us six months to get all of the pipes in the ground fixed. Remember I said those pipes are one of the oldest things that go on in a a community. 70% of the pipe in Southern California is something called AC pipe, which is a nice way of saying asbestos concrete, but people don't like to put the word asbestos next to their water, so they don't usually use that term. Um, But those are a particularly brittle type and it was uh, when Southern California happened to be developed, uh, it was a very common way of doing it. Because of that, such extensive loss to our water systems, when we got all the water people in the room and just you know, looking at the damage, how many breaks did we think we would have and you know, working it out, and there was a moment at which one of the guys from the water company said, but wait a minute, how much pipe is made in the U.S. each year? Aren't we all going to be competing with each other for the same product? Right? And that's where we end up coming to the conclusion it's going to take us six months uh, to get it made, uh, get all of the, the pipes repaired across the region, even with them working as hard as they can. And then the other part that we recognized is the role of fire following earthquake. People in San Francisco know that pretty well, right? Uh, and there's actually a, um, a professor, he used to be here at Berkeley, uh, Charlie Scothorn, who's one of the probably the expert in the world on fire following earthquake, and we engaged him as part of this process to say, what did we think the role of fires was going to be? And he came to the conclusion by extrapolating from the rate of fires in Northridge, the much larger area, so many more people receiving the strong shaking, he said 1,600 fires large enough to call the fire department, 1,200 of of which would grow beyond the capacity of one fire engine to respond. We don't have 1,600 fire engines in Southern California. We are going to be facing the probability of fires getting out of control. As he went and tried to model this, he ended up concluding that the fire losses actually double the losses for the region. It was so extreme that the state geologist said, you can't be right. This can't be. We can't go with this. It's just too much. And we ended up uh, convening a special group of fire chiefs. We got the L.A. chief from Northridge, the Oakland chief from Loma Prieta, a few other fire chiefs around the state to sit down with us and go through this analysis. 
And they came to the conclusion that, in fact, we, if anything, it was an underestimate. So we see the potential for fire following earthquake as being the overwhelming issue that we are going to be dealing after the earthquake, and water problems compounded. Um, we also ended up with business disruption costs that uh, are potentially, again, double the losses because of the loss of business. And that's with a very minimal analysis just on the impact of loss of water and loss of electricity. And as we looked at what's going on in the modern world, we struggled to quantify it, but we recognized that telecommunications has changed the nature of business. If we want to keep our businesses open, we have to have telecommunications. We have to have connection to the Internet. And we have actually been creating new vulnerabilities. Like, um, you know, at the time of Northridge, our grocery stores had warehouses in the Inland Empire. You know, they, out in the Fontana area, for those of you who know Southern California, there were major warehouses for the grocery store chains from which they would deploy food and, and go out to their different stores each day. When we had the earthquake and disrupting things, the food's there. Because of the Internet, we no longer have that. They do a just-in-time economy. The, you know, they can decide each day exactly how much needs to be shipped into Southern California. It's not cost-effective to house, have those warehouses. They're all gone. All of our food now crosses the fault to get to us each day. When the San Andreas moves and disrupts that, uh, the import across those areas, when those freeways are gone, we don't have a stockpile of food on our side of the fault anymore. So we're recognizing that communications has changed the nature of where our vulnerabilities are, and we're trying to understand it in more detail. So I can show you the type of things of how we've tried to understand the impact that these things happen. So let's look at damaged buildings. We know we're going to be having damaged buildings. What does that mean to the rest of us? Well, we damage it from a variety of ways. We have shaking, we have fire, and actually water damage. There were $2 billion of losses in Northridge, so out of, out of 40 uh, came from water damage. Because of it, you have significant short-term consequences. You lose life, your business is closed, you don't have a place to live. How do you get rid of those problems? Well, you need to take on quite a few different actions. You need to get rid of the debris. You need to be able to have power to do that. You need to have transportation to get the debris out and bring the new supplies in. And you need people that are able to be there to work on those. If you don't get your buildings back in a long enough term, what do you end up with? You end up with significant business disruption. You have people that end up giving up on the region because they don't have an adequate place to live. And the other big thing and this was very important in getting Los Angeles to understand what the issue is, is that each damaged building affects all of the buildings around it. We often see after an earthquake that a badly damaged building will cause red tagging of the adjacent buildings because you know, it's just too dangerous to be in there during the aftershock sequence. So what we have is the, you build, damage to one building affects everything around it. And this is a really important thing to understand and to really work with because it means that the, uh, um, we have left the cost of retrofitting buildings solely to the owners, but the cost of not retrofitting lands on all of us. And this is one of the um, you know, sort of societal aspects of it that we really, really need to grapple with if we want to move on to a safer society. Let me also take a moment out of this, because this was a very important thing of what we looked at, Many people don't know that our building code does not try to give us a building that you can use after the earthquake. Absolutely modern building designed to the current code is trying to make sure that you can crawl out alive. It's saying try and not collapse, but if it's a complete financial loss, oh well. Right? Uh, and even getting out alive... We, in fact, you know, there's, it's not actually perfect. It's not guaranteeing it. It's saying, let's have a 90% chance of not collapsing. Well, if you say you have a 90% chance of not collapsing, you're actually accepting a 10% of our current modern buildings collapsing in the shaking. That's what it actually means once you aren't looking at an individual building, but you're looking at a group of buildings. And in addition to collapsing, there's also impairment of buildings, right? A building may not damage anybody, 
but it's going to be red tagged and you can't use it. Yellow tag meaning you only get limited use. You're not going in during the immediate aftershock sequence. If you look at the history in California, what we see is that on average for every collapsed building, we've had 13 red tags. And for every red tag, 3.8 yellow tags. This is data from Northridge and Loma Prieta, 63 impaired buildings for each collapse. Uh, By comparison, the Napa earthquake that just happened had a similar level, 57 impaired buildings per collapse. So what does this mean if we have a really big earthquake? Well, it's not a 10% collapse rate because that's only in the strongest shaking and not everywhere gets the strongest shaking. But Dr. Porter from, from Colorado took the distribution of shaking in uh, the shakeout earthquake and compared it against the design criteria and estimates that we're talking about a 0.8% collapse rate for modern buildings. Well, when we now put that across the scale of Southern California, if we scale up with those red tags, 0.8% collapse rate means 10% of our buildings, new buildings, red tagged, and another almost 40% yellow tagged and impaired use. How do we keep our businesses going in this situation. And as a really concrete example of this, this is a picture of the city of Christchurch, New Zealand, right? In 2011, so this, it was a, it's a city of about 400,000 people, um, modern skyline. In 2011, they had an earthquake. It's in fact only a magnitude 6.3. It was in fact an aftershock to a seven that had been out of town. But the 6.3 was right under the downtown area. This this picture, amazing picture, taken during the earthquake itself. The building code in New Zealand is like ours. It's a life safety code. And it said, you know, make sure you can crawl out alive. And it worked. This was essentially their design earthquake. People, there were really only two buildings that caused a significant loss of life in the, in the, the modern buildings. One of them was, in fact, an older building. One of them should not have been allowed to be built. They see what the problems were. Basically, the code worked as it was supposed to. Only 185 people died in those two buildings. 1,800 buildings had to be torn down over the next several years. They didn't kill people. They met the code objective, but they were a total financial loss. And this is what Christchurch looks like now. They lost their downtown because of the same code that we've said is enough for us. Take this picture, imagine this in Los Angeles, okay? What will it be like when this is what happens to our downtown or to Oakland or to San Francisco? This is the way we have chosen to build our cities. And we said it's not worth the extra money to make them be usable, uh, and, you know, sometimes it's, we're thinking it's maybe only a couple percent increase in the total cost of a project to, instead of having this, having building you can use afterwards. Right? And this may be saying life safety, but, you know, I went to New Zealand actually last month. They asked me to come down and tell them about the LA project. And in the discussions there, somebody said to me, you can't treat life safety as what, just what happens in the earthquake. My brother died in the year after the earthquake because it was so bad he just gave up. My cousin killed himself in the year after the earthquake because he couldn't handle the financial losses that he was facing. Life safety isn't just what happens in the earthquake. So this is the picture I've been taking to Los Angeles and saying, is this the city we want to have after the earthquake? For all the problems of the buildings, the water is probably a bigger one. If we take the same sort of analysis, uh, what is it going to be like to be needing to get your water by buckets for weeks after the earthquake? Another person in New Zealand said to me, his house had been fine, he really was one of the lucky ones. He said, I didn't know how much water it takes just to live. I'm spending two hours a day getting enough water for my family to function. Because when you look at what happens to your damaged water supply, it can happen for a variety of reasons. You break the pipes with the shaking. You can offset the water coming into the region through fault offset. And chemical accents can cause a lot of contamination. Um, 
chemical accidents is a sort of odd way of saying it because one of the big issues they've seen in, in Christchurch, all those broken water pipes run next to broken sewer pipes. Yeah, that's enough. Um, so what happens? Right? You've obviously got the life loss, uh, loss of shelter. You can't run your businesses. They do extra damage to the buildings, and it really gets in the way of the medical response. You need clean water to have a hospital. Uh, to get it going again, you need a lot of these resources that are already impaired. You have to have transportation. The de- purification systems... Um, you know, they, they have some portable systems. Like the American Water Works Association said, we got this covered. We have portable systems. We'll bring them in. We have four of them in the country. Right? You got the scale of this. There's no way it's going to be working. And, of course, you need a lot of manpower to do it. If you go for a long time without water, you end up with really big consequences. You cannot reopen most businesses without water. A beauty salon, a restaurant. The thing most businesses can't open without water. And then there's the personal issues that you face as well. Um, how many of you would be willing to stay here when you haven't had a shower in a month? And what are the public health consequences of nobody having a shower in a month? And what you see is you end up, this is the one way you're most likely end up losing your population for a region. If we go in and look in Los Angeles in particular, we have a couple of specific issues. This is the Elizabeth Lake Tunnel. This is the original aqueduct, Los Angeles aqueduct, uh, as in Mulholland and, you know, the Chinatown movie, the the, uh, water coming in from the, the Owens Valley to Los Angeles. This tunnel was built in 1908, and it crosses the San Andreas Fault. This is where it crosses the fault, nine-foot-wide wooden tunnel, and we expect the fault offset to be about 15 feet, and this uh, aqueduct is going to be completely gone after the earthquake. There are three other aqueducts bringing in water to California, into Southern California, and the water districts have said, we don't have to worry about this. We have four aqueducts, so we lose one in an earthquake. We've got three others. And we were like, um, you do know that a 200-mile-long fault breaks all of them? You know, the most likely earthquake is going to take them all out, and they haven't been addressing this. The other issue that we have, though, is if you we look back at the Christchurch earthquake and what happened with them with their water system, we discovered. I mean, there's they in general have pipes like we do that that widespread breakages during the earthquake. They also had an experiment with two and a half kilometers of a type of uh, polyethylene pipe and none of it broke in the earthquake. There's also a type of pipe being created in Japan that does very well in an earthquake. This is called um, earthquake-resistant ductile iron pipes, and uh, Professor Tom O'Rourke at Cornell has been doing a lot of research on this, has been working with the city of Los Angeles, and we are now recognizing that we need to shift out our pipes and try and make them be ones that won't break in an earthquake. Let me finish this just looking at the the same sort of thing by looking at communication networks. Um, Again, we have damage from cell phone towers. We separate the fiber. Phone lines get overloaded. They get broken for a variety of reasons between the shaking and the fault offset. For instance, two-thirds of the Internet connectivity for Southern California to the rest of the world crosses the San Andreas Fault and fiber optic cables. It would be extremely easy to make those resilient to fault offset because fiber optic, you can just coil up extra wire and you move the fault and it now just gets a bit longer. Fiber optic, you can do that. But it hasn't happened up until now. So again, it's a place where there's a lot of ways in which we can lose our connectivity. Uh, It's very difficult to have uh, much of life anymore without communications. Uh, Again, we need the manpower and the transportation to be able to bring it together. And the long-term consequences are both business disruption but also emotional hardship. We have a society that does not accept not communicating anymore. Uh, What we saw in Sendai, Japan, when they had the magnitude 9 in 2011, they lost their electricity, people stayed. 
After 48 hours, they lost the backup power to their cell networks and all the cell phones out. And that's when they started seeing large numbers of people getting up and leaving the region. If they couldn't communicate, it was cold, <laughs> it was wet, and they, they, you know, no lights, but they couldn't talk to anybody. That ended up being the final straw. Uh, and here in Southern, in California, uh, we don't have 48 hours of backup power. Our communities have not been willing to have backup generators up at all the cell phone towers. So we, in general, have about four hours of backup power after which we lose our cell phone towers. And when we really look, the other thing that's coming in is just about every system we have now depends on Internet functioning. Right? My guess, you know, I'm sure the Internet's working after the earthquake. The problem will be whether or not we can connect to it and there's a lot of these systems that if they can't connect, they aren't going to be operational. And it's hard, again, to keep modern life going at this. So what's at stake in all of this? The other part of this is really understanding that the core issue is talking about our economic dependence. So if you look at a region, you expect the economic activity to be growing with time. If you don't, it's called a recession. During an earthquake, you lose assets. Things get broken, you, you know, things are destroyed, but you also lose business. Without water, without power, businesses stop functioning. You stop creating economic uh, wealth. What we are trying to do is recover quickly enough that we get back to where we were. Within a year or two is considered really pretty good. And in fact, we have seen situations, if there's enough money coming in after the event, if people have insurance, if, people, if FEMA is, is active, really the situation after Northridge, we saw the economic recovering going really quickly. People hired contractors, they hired subcontractors. We were really back up within about two years from where we had been. It doesn't have to happen that way. You can have a response. If the response is delayed, and things become too difficult and you lose population and people move out, then you end up with a situation where you really can't get that economic engine going again. Or if you don't have assets coming in. You know, if we have... FEMA doesn't write checks the day of the disaster anymore like they did in 1994, and instead of having 40% insurance coverage, we now have about 10% insurance coverage. Who's going to be able to pay to repair their house? How do we get things moving again? And when you look at the difference in the areas under the curve, you, rec you can see that having that delayed economic response can be a much larger economic impact than the disaster itself. As an example of this, we were able to get the data for New Orleans. Right? Here's data comparing the economic, the GDP of uh, Nashville and New Orleans from 2002 to 2012. And you can see that before the hurricane hit in 2005, causing $80 billion in losses, Nashville was actually a bit smaller than New Orleans. They're comparable, though. They are similar-sized cities in a similar area. When you look then for the next seven years, the total losses by saying what's, you know, that New Orleans should have at least had the GDP of Nashville, you end up estimating $105 billion in losses in just those seven years, and we're continuing to lose at about $15 billion a year. The long term, you know, after a decade, the economy is maybe 20% below what it would have been if the hurricane hadn't happened. So this is what we're worried about in California. The level of disruption that we will face. How do people stay when this is going on? I also found in Los Angeles it was really uh, useful to uh, consider what happened in San Francisco. Here's uh, data from 1906. 1905, San Francisco is five times the population of Los Angeles. And, you know, it was the economic center of California. Everything went through San Francisco. The decade after 1906 is the largest growth decade in the history of Los Angeles. People gave up on San Francisco and went south. By a decade later, uh, and there's, of course, new, new population coming into California, but they didn't come to San Francisco. They came to Southern California. And within a decade, Los Angeles is bigger than San Francisco, and, of course, now it's about five times the size of San Francisco. So, you know, that's just an anecdote but this is the type of thing we're looking at. And in fact, when take the other end of the population data, we actually saw the only times, there's only four years in the history of Los Angeles that the population's gone down. 
1971 and 1972, which were right after the 71 San Fernando earthquake, and 1994 and 95, right after Northridge, the only times we've ever lost population. So how do you try and make them resilient? We defined a set of critical infrastructure and said that these need to function well enough to keep the system going. We're not trying to make them perfect. We're trying to get them good enough. Because from this critical set, we developed a set of systems that define our life. And all of these are part of what makes a society work. We can cope with a little bit of loss. For instance, if we lose some buildings, but we still have the internet, we have people that can telecommute. And even though their building may be out, that doesn't mean that that business is completely shut down. Or if we lose water, but we still have transportation, we can bring in water to drink, which will work for a while. And then, so these are the areas that we're looking at, and then we also, of course, have sort of these wild cards of internet and cell towers where we aren't completely sure of, of how the things play out. So this is how we put together a picture of what the disaster could do to us. And by putting it together in this framework and saying this isn't just about will this fault move or not, it's rather eventually the fault will move and this is what's going to be happening to our society. We've been able to get engagement in Southern California for moving forward. Uh, as, as Mary said, uh, we uh, create, I worked with the mayor's office, we created a resilience by design program out of this, we had recommendations for how to move forward, a series of, of proposals for retrofitting the different types of bad buildings that we have. And as of last Friday, uh, all of the mandatory retrofit ordinances were passed. Uh, and the voluntary rating system, it's voluntary, but the city is in the process of rating all of its own buildings. We'll be disclosing that information to the public to try and get the discussion going about what does it mean to have a good or a bad building. We know which buildings are most likely to fall down. Wouldn't everybody like to have that information? Well, maybe the building owners don't particularly want people to be having all that information. But um, it's better... You know, I'm a scientist. I think knowledge is always better. We've discovered that, in fact, the population really, in general, does want to know. And the city is trying to promote this approach by going with this, this rating system and disclosing all the information. There's also a wide variety of proposals that have been put in to, to fortify the water system. Here are these... This is actually the San Andreas Fault in the California Aqueduct. It's sort of astonishing. It actually runs down the fault for a ways. Um, uh, so it, proposals to how to strengthen the aqueduct crossings, improve the, the pipe system. And um, the last one, which is potentially the most important one, maybe isn't obvious where I say a resilience by design program. From here on out, every, there's a, now a resilience by design program at the Department of Water and Power, and every project they undertake is being evaluated for the impact on our seismic resilience. Um, Moving forward, and then on telecommunications, in some ways we discovered the problems weren't really as bad as they, they might have been, uh, but there are some very big things. One of them is our cell phone towers. 50% are on buildings, and generally our older buildings more likely to come down. So, but we do have freestanding towers, and we are requiring now that those be built to a life safety standard, not just a I mean, a, a, a functionality standard and not just a life safety standard. Right now, cell phone towers are life safety. Make sure you can crawl out alive. Who do they think is living in cell phone towers? I mean, it's sort of a bizarre concept. And so we're saying, no, they actually, we're going to be aiming towards usability of, of the towers. Okay. And from this, we're hoping to really move forward. The city of Los Angeles has adopted all of these um, I actually, you know, I would have been happy if half of it had made it through. The fact that all of them seem to be going forward to me is, is incredibly astonishing. And I think it's going to make a difference. We're also seeing um, the mayor's really been reaching out to the other cities. I have them coming to me as well. We are looking at, um, there's a dozen other cities that have asked about uh, getting more information to move towards some of the ordinances themselves. I thought I would end this by uh, just teasing you a bit. I couldn't give you the full thing yet, but we're starting to do the same thing for up here. Uh, we're creating the haywired scenario because it's the impact of the Hayward fault on the digital economy. Um, 
and uh, it's going to be released in April of this year. So again, the same sort of pictures. You know that you've got the fault, but what does that mean in terms of the shaking that you're actually going to be receiving? And the scary thing, this scale is actually, um, I, I believe it's in its, its uh, um, accelerations and the, you know, it's twice the force of gravity showing up here in the Berkeley area. Um, and in the process, we're trying to, to create a lot of the same sort of information that I just showed you for Los Angeles. We're also trying to expand in a couple of ways. One of the ways is to try and focus more on some of the issues raised by aftershocks. So just what we saw in Christchurch, the ongoing sequence of earthquakes caused a whole other set of problems. So we're creating a synthetic aftershock sequence. It's all, again, it's a plausible. I'm sure it isn't going to be different. But part of the plausible... Uh, aftershock is plenty of aftershocks on other faults. That's a thing that we tend to forget, is that most aftershocks are off the ends of the faults. Sometimes they're on different faults. So we created a, a uh, statistically viable uh, sequence that matches all of the characteristics that we see. And so part of the planning that will be able to be used will be focused on that area. We're also getting modeling from Charlie Scawthorne about fire-following earthquake. And I thought it looked bad in L.A. Whew. Uh, this is really a big issue. Uh, and uh, San Francisco, of course, has an alternative firefighting system. Looking at developing more of the capacity in the East Bay is a, is a really big piece of this. And just one other sort of piece of information to give you the sort of idea of the things we're doing. Um, 25,000 people trapped in 5,000 elevators. So, again... Get that earthquake early warning in there and get those elevators stopped before the earthquake shaking comes through. There's 25,000 people that are not going to be spending a couple of days trapped uh, in a little metal box wondering what's going on. So, thank you. Hello. Hi, thank you so much. This is fantastic. Thank um, you. I'm a volunteer with Berkeley, City of Berkeley for emergency preparedness. I do a lot of this stuff. I recently visited Christchurch, and I was just really intensely moved by seeing the downtown, as I imagine you were, four years after the earthquake. Um, um, still abandoned buildings. You can still see the search and rescue marks on buildings. Um, what I learned speaking with a city planner in Christchurch uh, was I learned about the residential red zones where they actually right. purchased and demolished 8,000 homes in what he called a strategic retreat that they will not allow any structures to be built right. on that land again. And I'm curious if that's something that anyone in you know, California talks about or thinks about. Okay, the, the red zones in, in Christchurch, are they had a compounded problem. They, they had extensive liquefaction uh, that came with the earthquake. So it was one of the reasons that there's that much damage in spite of the size. Um, but it also literally sank the area. Right? So much material came out through the liquefaction. They then had to cart away. The elevation went down. And the regulations in New Zealand do not allow building uh, within the 50-year floodplain. And by sinking, they actually moved whole neighborhoods down into the 50-year floodplain. And they ended up making the decision to buy people out, keep them out of there, and uh, move on to other regions. Um, it's unlikely that we're going to end up in a similar situation. Number one, uh, liquefaction at that scale requires a very high water table. And the, the it requires rain. The good part of a drought is it really reduces the risk of liquefaction. Um, so, uh, and so we don't really have a comparable situation to that. Um, and it, it becomes a very difficult question: What is an appropriate level at which to keep people out? Uh, and the decision has been made in California, and it, it, the logic makes sense to me to say. You can't say stay away from the faults or otherwise we move out, right? There are over 100 faults in the L.A. metropolitan area. Everybody's within five miles of an active fault, right? So you've got to accept that you're near that. What you can do is say don't build right across the active trace of the fault and have your building ripped apart, and that's what we call the Alcos Priolo Act, right? The problem is, is that really is only about being exactly on the trace. And so the way the law works is you say if you're near, you've got to go in and dig and figure out where the fault is and make sure you don't stay on it. 
The problem with the implementation of that is you can hire a geologist to tell you where it is. You don't like his result, you throw it away and tell him to go away because you signed, he signed a non-disclosure agreement with you when you did it. And you can then submit it, find another geologist to give you a different answer. Not that that happens all the time, but the situ- we allow it. Right? And if, if it were up to me, I would keep our current situation in California saying only across the active trace uh, that we actually ban construction. But I'd say that any time a registered geologist is hired to do a report, it cannot be under a non-disclosure agreement. And the results of the report, as terms of his registration, get given to the state geologist and maintained in a database. We, it's hap- we have a major issue with landslides, where, again, the same thing happens, and we've ended up with major de- damage in landslide regions, and it turns out there had been a report saying this is landslides prone that had been thrown away. So uh, that would be the one modification I'd like to make. (laughs) Thank you, Dr. Jones. Um, We moved here from 50 miles north of New York City and had the pleasure of living through Superstorm Sandy. Um, And uh, we were on well and septic. And so for a week we had not only no electricity, but no heat, no water, no... And no cell towers. Right. Nothing. Um... There were two or three problems which um, I'd like to ask you to address in further detail. Um, One is that um, this was wind forces. They're different forces, but I think it might be the same problem. About 25% of the power poles just cracked. So the streets were full of live wires until NYSEG and the the utilities got around to turning off (laughs) the electricity. Uh, which is a hazard to everybody. That also meant people weren't driving. There was so much damage everywhere, it took time for the crews to get to the different neighborhoods. Um, So transportation, maybe. Um, Second, what bothered us coming here is the issue of fire. And we had a power outage, and people were lighting candles. And I've swapped out all my candles for those wind-up flashlights, because if they don't, we're really dependent on the utilities to have things so that they turn off. I'm more scared of gas, even, than electricity. If we have gas streaming out, somebody lights a candle, poof, the whole neighborhood goes. Um, So could you please speak to... um, plans utilities have to turn things off, you know, immediately. And secondly, you kind of had to go quickly for time reasons over fire control, but we live in such a congested uh, area here in Berkeley, in many places. Can you speak to Berkeley's fire department? Thank you. So fires and utilities, yes, you got it. That's where we've got problems. Um, One thing I'll just say, and I, I didn't say this earlier, you know, you look at where we have problems in Southern California. It's water, fire, and health care. It's like, where do we have trouble on a normal basis? Fire, water, and health care. And so, you know, the failures ha- in a disaster happen in the parts of the system that are already weak. Um, in terms of utilities, uh, one of the reasons for doing these scenarios is to engage the utilities in a discussion by asking them to come in and we didn't say, here's what the problem is you're going to have. We said, here's the shaking. Tell us what the problem is. So we got them to think it through and understand what the vulnerabilities were. And we scared them, and they went back to their companies, and we're starting a process. I'm not going to say it isn't a big problem. It is very much a big problem. But I, I believe that this scenario process has advanced the discussion And one of the things that's come out of it, it took a while to happen, and the mayor's process has implemented it, or gives us a bit of a prod in Southern California. We actually now have a consortium of utilities that are looking together at where the shared vulnerabilities are. Um, I wish, I mean, it's, uh, it tends to be focused on how to respond, and I tend to go, wait a minute, why don't you prevent the loss in the first place? Like, put valves when you have a gas pipe crossing an active fault so you turn it off when you set up the early warning system. Um, I think that whole p- process takes time. Right now I'm not, we're not in a great place, but I do see the discussion happening and that part is extremely encouraging. Fire following earthquake, you're right, it becomes the scariest part. 
When we modeled it for the Southern San Andreas, we doubled the losses with the fires, and we defined it as not having Santa Ana winds. I don't get to do that for the real earthquake, right? If we actually have Santa Ana winds, I don't think we keep the fires in control. And that becomes the real doomsday scenario. So you're right about that. What we are hoping, especially with Haywired, is to get... Uh, well, I'm getting it going in Los Angeles through this process. We've been working with the fire department. One of the mayor's uh, recommendations, and it's now moving forward, is that the fire department and the water department have to agree on what they need to do. And, uh, one, what, you know, city departments tend not to talk to each other, so making this requirement uh, has been a bit of an adjustment, but they're moving forward, and I think that Requiring that was probably the most important thing we did. Um, here in the Bay Area, you've got, again, you've got this issue. You've got all these different communities. You've got different systems in place. Um, in Haywired, we are very much focusing on the fire following earthquake for all of these reasons. And I mean, and, and Professor Scothorn's been working on this for quite a while. I think that we're getting traction on the problem. Again, not to say it's solved in any way, but I, I hope it's moving forward. Yeah. I'm very excited about the fact that LA is actually starting to do something about this. Um, it hasn't been my favorite city, of course. I'm in Northern <laughs> California. But I'm a Bay Area person. I'd like to know if there's a way that you know, an individual can impact it. I work with scientists, and I'm very aware that their primary effort is not political. And in fact, they would rather not deal with these things as most of us would not. I know the Facilities Manager Associ uh, Managers Association is very concerned about prevention, um, both for fire and for water and gas. Um, so the public-private partnership seems really important. I'm kind of overwhelmed with the thought of how do I, as an individual, begin to um, make some inroads here because I don't even know at what level. Is it regional? Do I go to my city council? I, you know, I'm just overwhelmed. I, I, okay. Any suggestions are fine. Okay, yeah, and I'm actually thinking, you know, so tomorrow I'm talking about science communication yes. challenges and why it's so hard for scientists to, to do this because we just talk in different ways. Um, and I, one of the points that would be there is, is we're never supposed to give the problem without the solution, and I sort of did that today. So I'm sorry about that. You're right. So what can you do as an individual? There's a range of things that can go on. Part of it is getting your, your local government to take action. I will say, I mean, I'm not as familiar with what goes on in the Bay Area. I went to the mayor of Los Angeles saying, look at everything San Francisco's doing. Why can't we be there? So in many senses, there's a lot of what's going on in the Bay Area that's very encouraging, and we tried to be learning from it. All of the regulations we put in about the software story, we just adopted from what San Francisco had done. Um, so we've now done the concrete one and worked out that ordinance, and I think you know, they're looking at how to, to, to learn from what we did. Um, so there is, you know, political support for doing this is important. Right? Um, the other aspect, though, is there are... There's a lot that you can do as an individual, um, and there's a group called the Earthquake Country Alliance that actually started the shakeout. So when we first did the scenario, we recognized that there was all these things that really could make a difference among individuals. We said, let's do, uh, let's get that information to people. We did the first shakeout drill. It was supposed to be a one-time only, but you get five million people to do something, and people take notice, and the state wanted to take it statewide. The group of people that, had, that worked with me to create the first shakeout was the Earthquake Country Alliance. That ended up becoming a bigger organization. There is a Northern California uh, chapter of it. I think it's just called the Earthquake Country Alliance here. The Bay Area Earthquake Country Alliance. Okay. Um, and Peggy right behind us might be able to give you more information. So Will you do. can become as an, involved as an individual on that. And then the other piece that I feel like I'm sort of, it's the next challenge for me, I'm not quite sure, community resilience. How do you get community organizations to care about this and move forward? Right. And that's a, it's a difficult problem, but I think it's where a lot of the strength will be. Um, communities recover because people want to stay here. So we need to make this, you know, you, you need to make your home a place that 
is worth staying through the problems. <laughs> right. And, and, and I think that that's right. where one of the really big pieces are going to happen. There was research in New Orleans. The communities, the neighborhoods that have recovered the best, the single mo- best defining issue was that they did a Mardi Gras float each year. Yes, I've been reading about that, that community spirit, and in fact, almost in spite of the government assistance, in in some cases. In New Orleans, definitely. Um, You know, that was a pretty dysfunctional political system, but they, they, you know, so having a reason to come back. There's also an organization around doing the, the floats. Those crews would know how to, you know, get resources and arrange for volunteers and arrange for food and whatever, so they were more effective at managing their neighborhood. Um... But they also had a, a community spirit that made them want to be here. You've given me a couple of really good uh, suggestions already. And I really, I, I'm so delighted to see that you set up a scenario, which is, even though you said it's negative, it's very positive, in fact, because it sets it out and it, and it looks to, okay, these are the area, rather than, oh, it's going to be overwhelming, let's hit the road. Right. I mean, it says you can do really this and make a change. And yes. yes. And we're just trying to be good enough. Thank oh, you. Thanks. Yeah. Um, I really thank you for your talk, thank and you. I found it really stimulating and interesting. But I was involved with the development of the scenario in the 70s, scenario of a 7.0 earthquake on the Hayward Fault. Yeah. You're probably familiar with that yeah. state scenario. And um, some of the issues that came up, like, for instance, and I live in Berkeley, the Chevron, we're in the Chevron Auditorium, so I'll mention that first, the Chevron gas line and oil lines that go right on San Pablo down to San Jose from the Chevron oil refineries are huge pipes that were built in the 40s and 50s or earlier. Um, there, it was viewed in the scenario that they would probably break and there would be huge, huge fires. And we tried to vote in the city of Berkeley for getting some kind of suction system to get water from the bay to be able to use in the fire stations, but that we did not pass that, even after the fire in the Oakland Hills. Um, I think we're in really bad shape, if not worse, than 45 years ago in the Bay Area right now. And um, the firemen and the police do not live in Berkeley or San Francisco. They live in Brentwood and Antioch and places where they can afford to live. And, um, okay. Anyway, I just wanted to... uh, ask you, again, I appreciated the person before me, but I really do feel that it's very difficult to, as a person who's in a different profession and not a seismologist, to be able to work, even if you want to, in some organization to try to get these things changed. Well, I think that we do need to look at what we can do as a community. And, and you know, I, I'm trying to understand why we got it through this time. You know, what's been different? And I do think that part of that has been that we had the science to make a clear statement. You know, and I'm hoping that the haywired scenario will give you guys a tool. You know, it's not like it's really new science. It's just giving it into a coherent picture so you can make that connection to what it is and why these actions are worthwhile. I just want to mention, I hope you're going to include Silicon Valley and the things like bubonic plague in little jars and oh yeah, stuff so like we've that. been doing quite a bit okay. of work with them and the and the uh, plants, the the power plants. Yeah. Uh, uh, you mentioned insurance. When you, as a homeowner in Brooklyn, you, you I have very smart friends that say it's smart to get earthquake insurance, and I have other equally smart friends that say it's the stupidest thing you can do. So I wonder what your position is. Okay, earthquake insurance is a very difficult thing. It is very clear at a societal level that we desperately need a much higher rate of earthquake insurance. When you look at what's happened in Christchurch, they are recovering only because they had 95% insurance coverage. It brought in the money that allowed them to do it. They almost lost their reinsurance because of this. They were finally able to bring it along. If they have another big earthquake like this, they're losing it. They're trying to figure out how to move to a higher standard 
This is the problem with the life safety code. As a society, we need more insurance now and we need to move to building buildings that don't come down. As an individual, it is a much more difficult choice, partly because what we, um, the products that are offered, you're required, you can only insure for the total replacement value of your home. You aren't, you know, and if you really retrofit your home, the chances of losing the complete value is extremely small on a really well-built house. So do you do this? Um, one way to support you in making the decision, there's a new tool that's just out, a place called temblor.net. It's an, actually an ex-USGS scientist who has taken the USGS data and p turned it into a really uh, accessible tool. You put in your address, it tells you what... Uh, um, and, and you put in the value of your house, and it gives you the probability in whatever time frame you want to look at, usually the length of your mortgage, 30 years, your probability of shaking, uh, of damage. What's your chance that you're going to have uh, major damage exceeding a half a million dollars and comparing it to other things that you're used to insuring for, like, you know, fire of your house, uh, totaling your car, being sued, major injury. And uh, in Berkeley, in general, Unless you have really retrofitted your house, your probability of major damage is up there with your chance of major injury and greater than your chance of being sued, totaling your car, or burning down your house. So um, it's a useful piece of information to, to just do that, that financial comparison, temblor.net. So the bottom line was, would you get it yourself if you had a... <laughs> I haven't talked my husband into it. <laughs> Please join me in giving another round of applause to Dr. Lucy Jones. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.